So you don't think this could have been handled, this actually could have been handled better in any way? No mistakes? No, I, I, I don't think it could have been handled in a way that there, we, we're going to go back in hindsight and look, but the idea that somehow there's a way to have gotten out without chaos ensuing, I don't know how that happens. I don't know how that happened. So for you, that was always priced into the decision? Yes. That was President Biden in an interview this week with ABC's George Stephanopoulos defending his decision to abruptly pull U.S. troops out of Afghanistan. Biden, in this and other comments, has contended that nobody could have anticipated the rapid collapse of the Afghan government, resulting in the Taliban takeover in Kabul last weekend. And the president has also argued he had no choice but to pull out because the Trump administration had boxed him in by signing its own agreement last year to withdraw U.S. troops by May of this year. But do Biden's arguments hold up? As the U.S. military accelerates its efforts to evacuate American citizens and thousands of desperate Afghans try to make their way to the Kabul airport, we'll get a reality check from a former top U.S. diplomat who served as deputy chief of mission in Afghanistan. And we'll also play an excerpt from my recent Conspiracyland podcast series that reminds us all American involvement in Afghanistan does not date back 20 years, as most news stories in recent days have said. It actually dates back 40 years, to the time that President Jimmy Carter signed a secret finding authorizing the CIA to funnel lethal weapons to the Mujahideen warriors resisting the Soviets, the arming of Islamic rebels who later became the Taliban. All that and more on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. So we're all in this weird uh, split-screen moment of, on the one hand, we see the clips of the president defending his decision, saying he had no choice but to do what he did and there were no mistakes made. On the other hand, the reality of what's going on in Afghanistan, including the Taliban's sort of, you know, public affairs, public relations uh, propaganda offensive, saying that they are going to not engage in reprisals against uh, the Afghans who helped us and that women will have rights. A lot of uh, reasons to uh, raise questions about that. No one example that just came across, uh, just moved, uh, is a Reuters report about a uh, Norwegian intelligence group that uh, released a report saying they've got evidence the Taliban are hunting individuals linked to the previous administration, intensifying the hunt down of all individuals and collaborators with the former regime. And one example that really 
really grabbed me is a letter they got hold of that was sent to a former Afghan counter-terror official who worked with uh, the British and our NATO allies, a letter that was sent to him, if you do not report to the commission, this is a Taliban commission, to explain your conduct, your family members will be arrested instead, and you are responsible for this. You and your family members will be treated based on Sharia law. That is the kind of message that I think a lot of Afghans are really terrified about right now and um, perhaps undercuts what the Taliban are saying publicly. I was just wondering if anyone actually seriously took anything that they said at face value in terms of their kind of respect for women's rights or kind of commitment to not retaliating against members of the former regime. Does anyone really believe they're going to do that? Well, it does strike me, though, that the stakes for Biden and his administration are so high on this point, because if the Taliban, you know, do try to behave in a semi-responsible way, the horror of what we're watching on our TV screens right now will fade over time and, uh, you know, our attention spans will turn elsewhere. But if we start seeing mass reprisals and a bloodbath, not to mention other possible consequences such as a reconstitute al-Qaeda, you know, gaining another foothold in Afghanistan, then this isn't going to go away for Biden and the administration. It's not obviously not going to go away for the Afghan people either, but the consequences, the political consequences are going to be enormous. Yeah, I, I think I think it all it all rests on that in, in some ways. Uh, what actually happens on the ground there, you know, whether there are reprisals, executions, you know, women are treated in the in the terrible ways that they were treated when the Taliban held power the last time around. And I think what will happen is all of the things we're hearing Joe Biden say about the rationale for doing what they did and executing it the way they did is going to come under tremendous scrutiny. We're already seeing Democrats in the Senate and the House call for for hearings to investigate a lot of this. There's some troubling reporting, notably in the Washington Post, about some of the reasons Biden may have delayed and engaged in some of the foot dragging on processing these visas. The White House denies this, we should say, um, at the start. But the Post has reported that Biden was worried about the images on television of refugees coming into the United States and that that would spark a populist backlash from conservatives that would then merge with, you know, the the immigration criticism and the border, and that that would be a big problem. And as some have, have pointed out, you know, you're going to get that from Tucker Carlson, no matter what. He's already called this uh, an invasion. He said that the refugees from Afghanistan coming in would, const- would constitute an invasion. So you might as well do. He's uh, channeling what you- Steve Miller there, yeah, right, who was exactly. on Fox the other night on Laura Ingram saying the same thing. Why should we be letting these Afghans into our country? But um, I mean, the difference yeah. between, you know, it's so stunning because, you know, these are these are people who risk their lives for an American mission uh, that, you know, a lot of Americans and a lot of conservative Republicans supported for a very long time in Afghanistan. And by the way, you're already seeing, you know, multiple Republican governors, including big Trump supporters like Kevin Stitt in uh, in Oklahoma, saying that they would welcome um, Afghan refugees. So now let's 
stipulate that we don't know for sure that this is true, but but the Post has been reporting this, and um, and I think there's gonna, it's just going to be a lot more scrutiny on why this happened, how it happened the way it did, uh, and that could be uh, real trouble for Biden and his administration. Well, we, we do know it's true that the fear was valid, right? The fear that if large numbers of Afghans were admitted into the United States, it would be a source of attack. And, as, you know, so, so that is true, whether or not that fear actually kind of motivated or drove the Biden administration's policy to not plan for this is another question. Look, and, and it's, it's also possible, by the way, if you just say that, you know, you know, often when you look for the most interesting or sinister reasons that that, uh, you know, government makes mistakes, it's not that it's it's disorganization, it's chaos, right. it's it's dealing with the crisis of government. It's, it's not malevolence, it's incompetence. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So that yeah. could be the does case seem here. to be on full display at the yeah. at, at the moment. Um, I look, I think, you know, the first test, obviously, is how many people are going to be able to get out? Because the numbers, uh, I just uh, heard Jason Crow, the congressman from Colorado who fought in Afghanistan, on, and he's a Democrat, saying, you know, the numbers really are up to 100,000 who we need to get out, Afghans who were part of the Afghan government, who helped us, who served as translators, who, you know, served with the, um, uh, with the military. And that's a staggering number compared to what did we get out, like a couple thousand yesterday from the airport, and you have thousands and thousands trying to get in. So Right. Uh, and, uh, and meanwhile, Biden seems to have essentially drawn a line at just get Americans out, right? He's right. going he's gonna to stay in Afghanistan with U.S. troops protecting the airport as long as it takes to get Americans out. Every, right, every, right. Everyone else. And then after that, you're, you're, it seems like you're on your you're own. You're on your own. Um, yeah. Yeah. I just want to, uh, before we get to our guest, and an excellent guest it is, uh, Annie Forsheimers, who uh, actually served in Afghanistan, was deputy chief of mission. A couple of points. Uh, you know, Biden did this to um, end the era of endless wars. Uh, he might have done so for the United States, but it's, it's not, it's highly doubtful he would have done so for Afghanistan in today's Washington Post, Ahmed Massoud, the son of the uh, of the rebel commander Ahmed Shah Massoud, who was assassinated on the eve of uh, 9/11, who had fought valiantly against the Taliban, said in his uh, op-ed today, he's going north, hooking up with Afghan army soldiers who were, quote, disgusted by the surrender of their commanders and are now making their way to the hills of Panjir with their equipment. Former members of the Afghan special forces have also joined our struggle. That is a struggle to fight the Taliban. So it appears that the war for the Afghans will continue. And then I do want to take a point of personal privilege by... Um, playing the introduction for an episode uh, of uh, the Conspiracy Land podcast uh, we did in June and July on Jamal Khashoggi, because there's one episode that dealt with the war in Afghanistan. And as I said in the introduction, all the coverage to date has talked about the 20-year American involvement in Afghanistan. That's not true. It's actually twice that, 40 years to the time when the Soviets invaded Afghanistan in 1979, and Jimmy Carter responded. Let's listen to uh, a few minutes of that Afghan episode in the Conspiracy Land series. 
Afghanistan. War in the Hindu Kush. A war fought by the Soviet Union to prevent the spread of Islamic fundamentalism. In December 1979, more than 50,000 heavily armed Soviet troops invaded Afghanistan, igniting a dangerous new confrontation in the Cold War. This is a callous violation of international law. It is a deliberate effort of a powerful atheistic government to subjugate an independent Islamic people. That was President Jimmy Carter in a nationwide TV address laying out steps he was taking to respond to the Soviet incursion. He curtailed U.S. sales of sensitive technology, cut off Soviet fishing rights in U.S. waters, blocked millions of dollars worth of grain sales to Russia. He even threatened a highly symbolic public response, a boycott of the 1980 Olympics in Moscow. The Soviet Union must realize that its continued aggressive actions will endanger both the participation of athletes and the travel to Moscow. But there was something else the U.S. was doing to combat the Soviet invasion that Carter didn't mention that night. He had already signed a top-secret finding authorizing the CIA to funnel lethal weapons to Islamic guerrilla forces who were resisting the Soviets. The Afghan guerrillas are capable of launching attacks on the Soviets and then fleeing. The Mujahideen are all over the country. They are numerous. They wanted to make us communists. Thank God we are Muslims. We are following God's path. We do not want communism in Afghanistan. As you're about to hear, few did more to publicize and champion the Mujahideen war against the Soviets than a young Saudi journalist dispatched to report on the conflict some years later. I'm talking, of course, about Jamal Khashoggi, and his coverage of the war made a huge splash, depicting the Mujahideen fighters as noble warriors against the Soviet infidels. And the hero of his stories? A fellow Saudi who arranged for Jamal to get unusual access to the front lines of the fight. Between 1980 and 1981, a newcomer from Saudi Arabia arrives to join the rebels trying to oust the Soviets, Osama bin Laden. Jamal's coverage of the Afghan conflict marked the start of a long and complicated relationship with bin Laden that, like much in Khashoggi's life, is open to multiple interpretations. When he went to Afghanistan, was he just a journalist in search of his first big story? Or was he a fellow Islamist who was promoting the cause of a Mujahideen warrior whose goals he very much shared? Khashoggi never condoned the terrorist violence for which bin Laden would later become notorious. But he never renounced their friendship either. And the bond they forged in the caves of Afghanistan was a formative experience that defined his early career. He retained a soft spot for bin Laden that stayed with him for years, even after the al-Qaeda chief's murderous attacks on America. This, Justin, you were looking at, a, obviously, a very disturbing live shot there. We understand that a plane has crashed into the World Trade Center. Osama bin Laden claims responsibility. The world's most dangerous terrorist. Well, that is uh, important history that uh, took us, uh, you know, takes us back to an era uh, that uh, I think is is largely forgotten today, but it's how we got into Afghanistan in the first place, and that was to resist the Soviets, and we did so by arming Islamic rebels who later became our enemies. Once again, uh, the law of unintended consequences trumps everything else. Well, not, not everybody will remember that, that history as well as you do, or 
you lived through it, Isakoff. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but it was it was I'm reminded it was immortalized uh, by Hollywood in a fantastic movie in 2007 called Charlie Wilson's War. Right, uh, right. right. And Charlie Wilson was a, a congressman who really on his own and with one CIA officer started this, you know, this effort to arm the Mujahideen in something called Operation Cyclone. And he was a hero. And of course, it didn't, as you point out, you know, it, uh, the Mujahideen ended up becoming uh, the, the people right. who, who attacked and, and, America. But, but, and do you remember, though, the, the, the end of, of, of Charlie Wilson's war, the message that they hit home really hard in that film was, and then we left Afghanistan and forgot about Afghanistan. Exactly. After, after arming those guerrillas and uh, achieving victory, overthrowing, getting the Soviets to pull out, the Taliban move in, become the leaders, and we wash our hands until 9-11. And by the way, somebody who drew a lesson from that was one senator from Delaware, Joseph Biden, who in February 2002 gave a speech at the Center for Strategic and International Studies about Afghanistan in which he said this, quote, history is going to judge us very harshly, I believe, if we allow the hope of a liberated Afghanistan to evaporate because we are fearful of the phrase nation building. So back then, Biden wanted to engage in nation building in Afghanistan, build it into a democracy, uh, build it into a country that could stand on its own two feet. And, to be fair um, to him, he did change his mind about that. Uh, <laughs> well, not, yes, not just, clearly. Not just recently, but going yeah. all the way, way back to the yeah, uh, Obama administration mind, before. But at the time... That was uh, the Biden message. I was going to say the real question is whether or not the events of the last few days really means that the United States is for good out of Afghanistan or whether or not we're going to get drawn back in once again. I mean, it, we have a way of getting pulled back in there. Excellent I don't think question. it's over. All right. So let's um, get to our uh, excellent guest. We are now joined by Annie Forsheimer. Annie is a 30-year veteran of the State Department who served as Deputy Chief of Mission in Afghanistan. Annie, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you so much for having me. I'd like to start out with uh, President Biden's comments just last night in, the, in his ABC News interview with George Stephanopoulos. The president has basically made two points here in defense of the way this has played out. Number one, that nobody could have anticipated that the Afghan military and government would just collapse within a few days and that that could not have been foreseen. And secondly, that he had no choice because uh, the previous administration had boxed him in when it signed the agreement with the Taliban in Doha in 2020 to withdraw by May of this year, and um, he had to therefore follow through. Otherwise, U.S. troops would be at risk. What do you make of the president's arguments on both those fronts? Well, I disagree with them. I think that with the first one, in terms of nobody could have predicted, uh, that's a 
you know, that's that's kind of a term in Washington that all predictions have to be perfectly accurate. But people predicted that a full withdrawal would cause uh, massive instability. And I guess the intelligence community and others were saying it could take months and instead it took weeks. But the point was everybody's predictions pointed in the same direction, especially because we had designed the Afghan military essentially to be dependent on us. What changed the calculus was that I think most people had no idea that the president would take the step of ordering out all the logistics contractors as well as the U.S. troops. And that was one more kind of factor that I think contributed to the difference in speed between months and weeks. The Afghans have been, you know, their their forces were designed to need U.S. enablers. And they took those out. There was no planning for how they would be, how they would substitute. The idea, I think, is that they ended up saying they would repair planes over Zoom. And this was an unforced in every way error. In respect to the second argument, the reason it's unforced is that that May deadline was not binding. This is an agreement. This was not binding on the United States. It's an agreement. I believe you had a guest who was talking about this, so that it was between the United States and a group that we didn't even fully recognize as having the name of Islamic Emirate, et cetera. But President Biden had the option of looking at the conditionality in that agreement and deciding rightly that there was plenty of evidence that the Taliban had not held their end of the bargain and said that the United States sees its own national security interests in lengthening the timeline of our withdrawal. I think the president's argument here is that had he done that, the Taliban, which had not been directly attacking U.S. troops um, since the agreement signed, would resume doing so, and American lives would be at risk. Well... I, I, you know, I would not uh, contest that American lives could have been at risk, but those American lives were on bases and in positions that were very well defended. Uh, you know, I served there for a year between 2017 and 18, and the embassy got rocket attacks, and Bagram Air Base got rocket attacks. Uh, there were that kind, there were those kinds of risks. But you know, the embassy was there; the diplomats were facing those risks. And what was at stake was so large that having 2,500 U.S. troops face those risks, too, was the kind of decision that I think the president should have taken as a president and made. Annie, there's been a kind of a cascade of of failures here. I mean, there's the original policy decision to pull out and to pull out expeditiously without sufficient planning that we've just been talking about. And then there's the consequences of that, which is the tragedy unfolding at the airport, the many, many thousands of people desperate to get out of uh, Afghanistan, Americans, but also many, many thousands of Afghans who supported our mission. You've been at the State Department for a long time. The State Department uh, oversees, I guess, along with the Homeland Security, the SIV visa program. In your view, what went wrong And what could the United States have done better to process these visas and to ensure that all of these people who risk their lives on behalf of our mission could have gotten out safely? You know, something about visa processing and immigration law, I think you need to remember that the client in this case is the U.S. Congress and the U.S. people, that immigration laws are tough and the rules about people coming to live in the U.S. are restrictive. 
the SIV process had about 17 steps to it. They include security checks, medical checks, and verification of employment, and, and not just any employment, but good employment. Uh, that's the way the program was designed. It absolutely was not designed for an emergency. It was even not designed for everybody who ever worked for us. Uh, most people do not want to leave their homeland and start over in the United States with nothing, with none of their extended family uh, worried sick about them. That is not what people wanted. So people who were eligible for SIVs didn't necessarily want to use them. What we are dealing with right now should have been handled, and now I think is going to be handled through a humanitarian parole process, which is an extremely streamlined version of our immigration laws. So I don't think that fixing the SIVs was actually the point because they served a certain purpose. The point was bringing us to this emergency without also thinking about the immigration procedures at the same time is what has led to this unconscionable humanitarian disaster that is unfolding. So any, you know, bear, with that with that in mind, do you think that the current situation in the Kabul airport and for the many thousands, possibly tens of thousands of Afghanistan people who are probably with ample justification terrified for their lives, is that situation salvageable by the United States? Or are we faced with a situation where in about 10 days, you know, we'll, we'll be out and those people will be left to fend for themselves? I think that if the U.S. has that kind of um, priority in its mind, that they would be content to watch people be killed because we didn't organize ourselves better, then that's not necessarily the country I was proud to represent for 30 years. We could do better. This is, you know, almost anything can be negotiated. What the problem is right now is figuring out how to work with the Taliban who have effective control of the access to the airport. It's simply not enough to say we have control of the airport. That's meaningless. People can't get there. So anyway, I, I think that the evacuation phase that we're in obviously has to be extended. The U.S. has to do more. Do you mean, and I'm sorry to cut you off, Annie, but do you, because Defense Secretary Austin said he's not going to do this, uh, at least the last I heard, do you think that we the Pentagon ought to be deploying troops on that road um, from, say, where the embassy is, the airport road to the airport to make sure that people can get through. There are Taliban checkpoints there. That would mean, you know, the possibility of conflict and, and confrontations with Taliban soldiers. Um, you know, first of all, this isn't, you know, as a diplomat, that's not what I would be sent out to do. But I would say that there could be ways that this has to be negotiated at a very high level with the Taliban to stand down uh, their fighters. Uh, and that is a bitter thing to think about, but to save people's lives, you have to do these sorts of things. You find a third party, a neutral party who can uh, take care of these negotiations. You know, I think one of the problems is how often the US thinks of ourselves as, as sort of the only player. You know, this, this arrogance of believing that the war ended because we left. This was a war in which we were one of many factors, one of many players. And this situation is the same. We do not have the ability to just sort of roll up our sleeves and make this okay without working with others. And I, the U.S. people keep getting handed these binary choices, right? That it's, 
it's stay and fight or leave completely, right? That these are not, these are not the case. It's a complicated environment. I got to say, your point about uh, there are many other players involved in this uh, really struck me because I don't know if you've followed some of the debate that's been going on in the House of Commons uh, mm-hmm. right now in which, uh, sure. you know, people are hammering Boris Johnson because he had no say or was not even consulted on this. So, you know, we asked our NATO allies to fight with us in Afghanistan after 9-11. They, they sent troops, they took casualties, they were with us, and then we pull out without even consulting them? Well, that appears <laughs> to be what happened here. No, I share uh, a lot of your you know, concern about that as expressed in your question. I mean, there were consultations, but I think that they were perfunctory, that the, the decision that was made by this administration was something they, they felt so strongly about that NATO did not cross them. And the U.S. enablers, the ones that were so important to the Afghan security forces, were equally important to the NATO security forces. So there was really no way that they were able to stay without us. You're with a group called Alliance in Support of the Afghan People, which had been lobbying for continued involvement in Afghanistan. I want to ask you a little bit about that, but also just you serve there, you were in country, you were deputy chief of mission. What are you hearing from the people you worked with in Afghanistan about what's going on right now? I hear what a lot of people are are hearing, which is the fear, first and foremost, that one of my closest Afghan friends is so frightened and moving and not, not willing to stay in one place for long. People want to get out. People who never wanted to abandon their country are admitting that they have to go. The Taliban method of spreading fear is strategic. Uh, They don't, I think, we don't have any idea what they're really doing in the provinces. But as far as we know, they're not, you know, killing large numbers of people yet. But it's a demonstration effect. And they go to people's homes in the middle of the night and they ask them about their government service, their Afghan government service. They are, you know, they had a targeted assassination campaign for the last 18 months against the kind of moderate uh, religious leaders, media figures, women judges, the kinds of people who might have been the face of a resistance. So overall, people in Afghanistan, the fear is so high that, you know, I, I think Americans cannot understand what it feels like to live with this sort of fear, but will your daughter be taken and given to a Taliban fighter uh, as, you know, as their prize. So when the Taliban says, as they have in recent days, there are not going to be reprisals against Afghans who worked with the United States and our NATO allies, women will have the right to go to school within and work within Islamic law. I take it you do not accept uh, their public statements or don't give them a lot of credence? (laughs) Well, by definition, I don't take their statements. Uh, I would like to see their actions. And uh, in a few cases, I think the actions have been to allow girls to go to school. In other cases, it is not 
they are not allowing it. Some women have been able to go to work, some have not. We think there are reprisals that have happened, but obviously in this environment, you don't have a free media, you don't have the ability to move around the country. I mean, there were uh, dozens of TV channels and hundreds of radio stations in Afghanistan, you know, two weeks ago, three weeks ago. Right now, the rest of the world isn't really hearing them. And maybe some of them are not even broadcasting. I don't know what the Taliban, uh, you know, plan to do. I do know that people quite often will talk about the difference, obviously, between the leadership, the ones who spend time in Doha and uh, in world capitals and what they, they know we want to hear. And then at a very personal level, a local level, what people are enforcing. And they have some level of discipline from top to bottom, but not complete. And yet today we're hearing reports that uh, there's widespread protesting against the Taliban takeover in Afghanistan. Is that a, a seed of hope or is it kind of a last, a last gasp? Today is Afghan Independence Day and people were celebrating their flag. And uh, it's amazing that that is a protest. You know, it, it, it is amazing, but that's what it's intended to be because the Taliban have taken down the traditional Afghan flag and raised their own. And I think there are people who wouldn't get off their chair for a lot of things and might not risk their life for a lot of things who feel differently about that flag. They bled for it. So I, I believe that there will be protests. I just do not know, you know, I think that the Taliban showed what they will do by firing into a crowd and uh, killing several people for a flag protest. So our people, people are exhausted. They have been through 40 years of war. And if there's a genuine effort to get rid of the Taliban, some people might take part. But other people, it's not that they like the Taliban, but they are tired and they are scared. Annie, I want to ask you about your mission, your service in Afghanistan, because you served there in uh, 2017 and 2018. So what, 16 or 17 years after the invasion. Did you see, while you were there, did you see your mission at that point as managing a very difficult situation and trying to avoid the kind of disaster uh, that we're seeing now? Or did you think at that point that there was a chance to build a sustainable, pluralistic, somewhat democratic society in Afghanistan? What, what did you think you were going to be able to do, you and your colleagues were going to be able to do? Well, first of all, all of those things. You know, there was the managing the disaster and there was the hope for the future. And that would happen not only within the same day, but within the same meeting. I really, really can't describe how smart and uh, far thinking and uh, genuine and, and warm uh, Afghan officials and human rights leaders and journalists and others can be. And I spoke by, um, by Skype to kids in every province through our network of something called Lincoln Libraries um, and kids who were studying English in extremely remote parts of Afghanistan. And so I held a little session with them to talk about diplomacy and, you know, smart and able 16 year olds in the middle of what most Americans would call nowhere, just, you know, it could blow you away. Um, also, I served there twice. The first time was between 2009 and 10. 
during the very famous uh, debate that President Biden references in 2009 about uh, surging troops. And then I came back seven years later. And so for me, it was the opportunity to see the difference in terms of the Afghans having their own agency, their own ability to control what was going on in their government and their economy. So, you know, there are a lot of people in the wake of events in Afghanistan over the last week or so that are talking about the hubris of the United States and this idea, this nation building project that we were going to be able to succeed. And if we go back to the question about the military collapsing, you know, Craig Whitlock at the Washington Post, who's been reporting on this and who's going to be publishing this book on the, the Afghan papers. Let me just read you. This is something that he wrote in a recent Washington Post story. He said, senior U.S. officials said, he's quoting American officials, and some of this is also drawn from oral histories with American service members who uh, served in Afghanistan. Senior U.S. officials said the Pentagon fell victim to the conceit that it could build from scratch an enormous Afghan army and police force with 350,000 personnel that was modeled on the central centralized command structures and complex bureaucracy of the Defense Department, though it was obvious from the beginning that the Afghans were struggling to make the U.S. design system work. The Pentagon kept throwing money at the problem and assigning a new generals to find the solution, and he, he r- described this effort as perhaps the worst debacle in the history of proxy warfare. Did wow. You, yeah. <laughs> so, I, I mean, mean, we've done some bad proxy warfare, so really. Well, I, I guess it just raises the question, were we too arrogant about our ability to really fundamentally change the dynamics of, of Afghan society? I think I'm hearing you say you saw real progress. I mean, Danny, that quote was about the military versus It was, the society, but the military, so, you've got you know. to... Right. Yes. But to build a a successful state, you have to have security. The military is a key component of that. But I'm hearing you say that you really think that this was a a worthwhile project that could have succeeded. Well, okay. So again, maybe, and you're not saying this, but, but away from the binary, right? It's neither a total failure nor something that would have been easy to, to succeed at. Um, this was hard every single day. I do agree with the observations that the army size was very large. And it's a it's a country that has a lot of natural enemies, a huge terrain. It's difficult to defend. There were reasons behind the force planning. But in the end, yes, that that seems to have been some kind of error of, of judgment. On the other hand, the alternatives were not fantastic. You know, that that people who started out, I mean, we the U.S. changed strategies about every 18 months, which was that. Well, yeah, and part of the and part of the problem is also we cycled in in and out, you know, military leaders about every 18 months as well. Right. Yeah, fair enough. And people like me who served for a year. I mean, I admit that. But the earlier versions of doing that, not the giant army, but the lean and mean one that required us to work with kind of the the warlords, the people who'd been the local power brokers. And you could have a litany of human rights abuses and grotesque behavior as long as you're armed. So the U.S. was forced to make a series of difficult choices all the way through. And the first part was, are these the people that we want to partner with? And if they're not, then we then Afghanistan needs a, a military. 
and the military should be large enough to do the task. And the task is, this is a country that is surrounded by enemies and has a number of terrorist groups that want to take up uh, space here. So at the end of the day, as not a military planner, I will tell you probably there should have been a different approach, but I do understand the questions that were asked. But I will say one thing, the idea that we came with us and somehow built the wrong model of the army or the wrong model of the society because there was some natural Afghan way that we ignored, I don't accept that at all. You know, Afghanistan, when we arrived, had been through more than 20 years of war. A lot of their institutions were in shambles and people were willing to take on a new approach because they didn't really have an old approach right? At the beginning of the war, I'll just put it this way, right? I am a certain age, I'll, I'll tell my age, 57. In my lifetime, if I were an Afghan, I would have lived under a monarchy, a socialist republic, a communist dictatorship, an anarchic civil war, a theocracy, and a democracy, and now apparently a theocracy again. So I don't think anyone can tell me that there's a single way that, you know, that we, the United States, should have should have asked people to be governed, they actually really like the democracy. It lasted longer than any of the other ones, except the monarchy, obviously. And I think that Afghans like their constitution. So I don't know what we're going to see in terms of protests, but they are going to defend the rights as much as they can that they've gotten used to. Annie, you mentioned the warlords before, and of course, a lot of those, or many of those warlords were notoriously involved in the drug trade, uh, as was the Taliban, uh, which had imposed a 10% tax on opium production in the country. Elaine Shannon uh, writes in the Washington Post today, now the Taliban controls a nation with roaring production in opium, hashish, and crystal meth. Taliban leaders may well announce a crackdown on religious grounds, but don't be fooled. The world may soon face the richest, best-armed narco state ever conceived. Is she right? Yes. Um, I think that, uh, I, yeah, I can't really quibble with that because I think that they will take the proceeds of narcotics processing. But it is fair to say that the previous government had officials who were deeply up to their whatever in narcotics processing too. But the Taliban is going to sort of, you know, make the opposite of privatize the whole thing. It's now going to become a state enterprise. And the most of their drugs are going, you know, to Russia and Iran, but it, it's very possible that it will find its way here. And they've managed, by the way, to find a way to grow um, Fedra, which is the precursor for methamphetamines, uh, rather than have to depend on chemicals. So wait, what is that product that they're growing? What is the crop? <laughs> Ephedra. The, the the plant. Right. It's it's a plant and that's instead of poppies or in a No, no, in addition. I mean, it's all the about this. It's all right. about the markets. One thing we haven't talked about yet is the reason that we got into uh, this war and this effort in the first place, which was September 11th and the attacks perpetrated by al-Qaeda on the U.S. What is your sense of whether the Taliban will uh, be open to al-Qaeda coming back. I mean, they're there in some form, but coming back in large numbers, reconstituting on their territory uh, and potentially using Afghanistan as a base for attacks against the United States or other allies. 
Well, to speak to that last part, I don't think the Taliban are interested in Al-Qaeda having an international attack on the United States or its allies. That, that probably would be something they could discourage. But in terms of Al-Qaeda coming back, they never left. And the Taliban, when they swept through these cities, one of the first things they were doing was going to the jails and letting people out. So the Al-Qaeda prisoners who were there and in the the most secure jail that had been on what was the U.S. military base, they let them all out. So not only were there Al-Qaeda out before this juggernaut, now there are more of them. And the idea that Al-Qaeda has been degraded, I think, is, is true in its way, but it doesn't take much and certainly a massive propaganda win by the uh, Taliban is all that is needed to make more people come to Afghanistan with the aim of, of being part of this very successful jihad. So it seems like America essentially has uh, two ongoing kind of strategic goals now in Afghanistan. One is a more short-term one, which is to deal with the humanitarian crisis that is ongoing there to to salvage as much of the situation as is possible. And then the longer-term goal is to, it seems, as Biden formulated it, to prevent Afghanistan from becoming a uh, epicenter for international terrorism or narco-terrorism with a light sprinkling of concern for human rights issues, it seems. If those are the the two strategic goals, and please disagree with me, you know, or add to them if you think, but what tools, what levers does the United States have at its disposal now to pursue those? Sure. So we have more than a few strategic goals, I would say. Um, We have a moral obligation to the people of Afghanistan who are facing this grave threat, an obligation in terms of evacuation, but also in terms of those who will be left behind. It's really important that we not squander our leverage, very, very small amounts of it are left to us, before we try our best to help people be protected and have their human rights respected. We have strategic goals, and I would have said that those goals were involved our counterterrorism posture, You know, that was something we wanted to do. We have pretty much given up our ability to easily control terrorism that comes out of Afghanistan. But we have a strategic goal in the rest of the world in making it, you know, in making it less uh, impossible for people to take our side and be our friend and ally. Right now, you know, China is, I, I heard from one person third hand that China is deploying these diplomatic talking points all over the place Latin America, Taiwan, which is, look what happens to America's friends. So I think our strategic goal is that we have to fly in the face of that set of talking points and make it a positive act to be our friend again. And there is a great distance to cover before that's going to be the case. In terms of leverage, as I said, there's very little left. What we have, we could say, is political with respect to recognition the Taliban-led government. Uh, We don't have to recognize them. But whether we do or not, it's actually going to mean less if other countries do. So again, Russia, China, Iran, a lot of countries are probably at this moment cutting a deal of what it will take for them to recognize the Taliban. I was going to pick up on that because we were talking before about, you know, glimmers of hope that the Taliban might be changing, might be more pragmatic, more peaceful, and this idea of Taliban 2.0. 
are there specific things that the United States government can or should be doing to try to push the Taliban in that direction? And should there be a kind of engagement with Taliban leaders that, you know, maybe publicly would be difficult to do right now, but might might be useful? Well, the United States is incapable at this moment in time of getting the Taliban to move troops, you know, their forces away from an airport road. So let's not overstate our influence. We should be using the Security Council. There is almost nothing I can think of that needs to be done that can be done by the U.S. acting alone. What should be done is a concerted effort to condition recognition of the Taliban and eventually them getting a seat at the United Nations on their commitment to abide by Afghanistan's international human rights obligations. We can't be thinking just about the people who leave, and we can't think that the solution is to get people out. 35 million people are still there. So what can the international community do? You know, I, I like to think about that incredible free press that they have and the incredible Afghan Independent Human Rights Commission. I would put that at the top of my list is what the international community is going to try its best to protect. Because if they have their press and they have their Human Rights Commission, then the Afghans can watch their own rights. You know, I think it's time for us to all to get out of the business of thinking we can be on a day-to-day basis a protector. They have their own institutions now. I think we did a good job in helping to nurture those as they grew. So can we do something? And we have recognition that we're working with and we have issues of money. And at this point, everyone knows the U.S. isn't going to put any force into its threats. So we really don't have that many tools left. Just to wrap up, I mentioned you're with this group, Alliance in Support of the Afghan People. Um, What specifically do you want to see done right now? You mentioned the international community, but um, looking to Congress, do we need investigations into how this played out? Do we, are there other steps that need to be taken right away? to prevent the kind of, uh, you know, horrific scenarios that people are anticipating? Well, uh, the group is a very small one. It's a set of very like-minded and concerned, you know, former officials like me and, and others. What we want most of all is for America to remain engaged. That is not the same as troops. It means engagement. It means political engagement, humanitarian engagement. There are so many needs right now. Uh, the people... There's also this you know, massive concern that there will be retaliation by the Taliban against people who work for the international community or even people who hold Western ideals. And so we, the U.S., cannot look away. We can't walk away. We can't turn the page. I'm sure that would feel better, perhaps, to some, but we can't. And uh, I don't think it's a question of, like, should we have gone? I, I think that is an irrelevant question. We went. And we have to end this right. All right. Well, on that note, Annie Forsheimer, I want to thank you uh, for sharing your insights, uh, particularly on point at this uh, at this moment in time. Thanks a lot for joining. Thank us. you for having me.